Well, men, we're uh, in our ongoing study in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, kind of in the middle of the chapter. Um, if you're following, uh, it's on page 8 of your little notes packet that I gave you. Um, there are um, a couple things about this uh, study that I just feel the need to keep going over and over and over again. But um, as you heard me say, as you've heard me say, um, Genesis 1 through 11 are foundational chapters for the whole Bible. And uh, I, this is the second time that I have taught uh, these chapters in the kind of detail that I'm sharing it with you guys. So I hope that's okay. <laughs> you're not the test uh, class, but you're the second test class. So, But um, I, I believe... Um, very deeply, and I believe very strongly, that uh, the typical Christian, and whatever that category exactly means, but the typical Christian doesn't understand how important these 11 chapters are. And often the typical Christian has never really studied them in depth. And there's probably a third comment. Many, I have no idea what that statistic might be, but I think many Christians even doubt whether these three, cha- these eleven chapters are historical; that they're of historical validity. They're just legends and things made up to explain something that they didn't really occur. Uh, I'm hoping that you are not among that group, because the Lord Jesus refers back to these a lot. He refers back to these particular passages that we're studying a lot, as does the Apostle Paul. And whenever the Lord quotes or alludes to these, he never says anything other than we are to accept them as historical fact of something that really happened and is of significance to him. And so what, what these chapters do is they explain in the, in, the, in the first chapter who created everything and what was he like, and what was his purpose, image bearers to have dominion, stewardship over his world. Chapter 2 He creates the human race to not only bear his image, but to engage in the most important institution, which is marriage. Chapter 3 answers the question, why are things in such a mess? If God did that in such a wonderful way and made us dominion stewards over his world, what happened? (laughs) Because it's a mess. And chapter 3 answers that. Not only that there's sin, but as a result of sin, everything is cursed. And the harmony... And the um, fertility, I'm trying to get the right word that I think are reflected, that God intended his world to be, have been disrupted by sin. But, as he promises in that same chapter, he is going to reconcile this world to himself in a redemptive way. Chapter 4, which is where we're now, is the motif or the theme of this chapter is the spread of, of sin through everything. And you see it, as we've already covered, the, the murder of Abel by Cain. And that is an intentional, willful decision on his part to kill his brother. And it is it is all wrapped around there bringing a sacrifice to God, but it is the jealousy, it is the bitterness, it's the anger and God, if you remember, we talked about that last. God tries to talk Cain out of this. 
but Cain will not be talked out of it. And he does what, uh, as we read. Yes. another aspect of self-centeredness rather than the God-centeredness? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That, that is at the core of, of the problem. It absolutely is. And so we, we discussed that uh, last week. Now, verse 17 through the end of this chapter, now this is, this is continuing that theme, but it is the spread of this sin and the depravity that goes with it through Cain's line. The rest of chapter 4 is the line of Cain. Chapter 5, well, well, I'll save that. I'll get to that in a minute. So uh, I've summarized a lot. Are you with me? Any questions? Just, just you keep this kind of framework in your mind each time we add a chapter to uh, our study. I, uh, last week I questioned why uh, they didn't, the Lord didn't look in favor on Cain. And, uh, and I was... I almost like uh, I, I guess I don't need to know the answer I no. he did and if I'm going to believe the Bible I need to believe that you know and so he must have since uh, known how Cain how Cain was and how he felt when he brought those gifts yes. and he, it might have been reluctantly or a duty or whatever but I don't I, I, I thought I was kind of to think I needed an explanation for mm. exactly why. Well, that's a very legitimate question, though, Woody. I mean, it really is. And you, you are correct. Uh, the text does not explicitly state uh, why, uh, well, why Cain's approach and attitude and all of that was displeasing. But it says, as you know, in, in verse uh, 5, that God had no regard for his offering. And so it, it, it doesn't seem reasonable to conclude that it was because he offered a grain offering. Because God will tell Israel in the future, offer a grain offering to me. So I don't think it's that. It has to be something that relates to his attitude, to why he is doing what he's doing and the motivation and attitude with which he's doing it. And, and I didn't mean to stir it up. Again. No, 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 that you're not stirring it up. I believe is a choice. And I, it is. I choose to believe what it says. Okay. okay? Yeah. I don't need to have it explained sometimes. Sometimes I do. Yeah. <laughs> is, this, isn't this a testament to God's ability to see into our hearts? Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, I, yeah, because you, when you read the dialogue between the Lord and Cain, then that follows in, in verse the rest of verse 5 and into 6 and so on. God is dealing with Cain's attitude. Yeah. He's dealing with Cain, be careful. What I'm seeing in your heart, the anger and the bitterness I'm seeing in your heart is an indication you are in trouble. It has its desire for you. It wants to rule over you. And we talked last week about why those words are so important, what those words mean. But Cain, as you know, just goes through and kills Abel. All right. Let's pick up then with verse 17 now. And um, again, it's so you don't get confused with this. Verse 17 through the end of the chapter is Cain's line. 
You're going to see some names that you're going to see in other parts of the, of, of the book of Genesis. But this is uniquely focusing on what happens to Cain's line. Cain has made the decision to sin and kill Abel. He has been, um, in effect, cursed by God. He has this mark on him and so on. Cain knew his wife. Remember, knew is Yadah in Hebrew, which means to have sexual intercourse with. And she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his own son, Enoch. Enoch was born Erod, and Erod um, fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. Now, again, those names are hard to pronounce and so on. But we're at a very important point. Lamech had two wives. An important statement? Yeah, I mean, he is a bigamous in clear, intentional violation of the monogamous marriage God's ideal that God set up in Genesis 2. Right? I want you to, this, this isn't just, oh, that's a nice little thing to know. No, 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 no. This is, it says he took two wives. That means he intentionally, willfully, decisively chose to be a bigamist. And so he is defying one of God's key creation ordinance items. I'm not going to marry one. Well, I'm going to marry two. And then it tells us the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah, Adah bore Jebal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. A farmer an animal breeder, an animal husband, whatever you want to call him. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. <coughs> Music, musicians. And Zillah bore him Tubal Cain. He was a forger of instruments of bronze and iron. He's a metallurgist. So what I want you to see here, those three items, the tents and livestock, lyre and pipe, this is a highly developed civilization. This is, this is not a civilization that is, pardon the way I'm putting this, a bunch of cavemen who are hunters and gatherers. This is civilization. This is citified living. This is settled living with all of the, um, well, let me put it, enough of the affluence and enough of the genius and culture to do these kinds of things. And by the way, well, I'll get it. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. No, I'm going to talk about it right now. There is, and you look at the Sumerian uh, king lists. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Sumeria was the name of the region, the southern Mesopotamian Valley, where, as far as we can determine, organized, citified, civilized living began in human history 5,000 plus years ago. And in those king lists, they talk about all the kings before the Great Deluge, and all the kings that followed the Great Deluge. What's the Great Deluge? The Flood. And so it, and it talks, not in great deal, but it talks about some of those kings, and it talks about how developed that civilization was. That's what this is referring to. Cainite civilization was not primitive, living in caves, just, you know, barely able. No, 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 this is a highly developed civilization. But it's a highly developed civilization that is not following the creation ordinance of God. 
What you are seeing is despite civilized living, despite culture, despite sophistication, despite technology, they are defying intentionally the will and purpose of God. And you see it even more so in the next section, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Etta and Zilna, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. In Cain's, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Most of your translations probably have this indented a little bit because it's kind of, it's verse. It's like poetry. It's, there's like a cadence to it. So this is maybe something that he sang. Is he saying, saying, singing this humbly? Is he singing it with contrition? Or is he singing it in boastful audacity? I, now if you didn't, I made it so easy for you to know how to answer that. This is boasting. If Cain's, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, mine's seventy-sevenfold. Point. I'm. Greater than Cain. My boldness and my my defying of humans as image bearers of God is greater than Cain's. Now, what you see, and listen, what you see here, and that's the reason I believe it's in the scriptures, is Cainite civilization is sophisticated, it's technological, it's cultured, but it intentionally defies the two key linchpins of a civilization that honors God. Don't treat humans as image bearers of God and defy God's institution of marriage. When those two things are treated frivolously, this is a civilization from God's perspective that's in decline. I don't know about you, but that is of concern in terms of American civilization in 2016 because those two items are not core values of our civilization. They used to be, but they're not. So I I hope you're following what I'm trying to do. Not really, it's not what I'm trying to do, it's what the scriptures are trying to do here. And for us to see from God's perspective that technology and affluence and culture is not what's important. What's important to God is, are you following my ordinances, which I instituted for your good? And the answer, of course, is no. I wanted to get through this last week, but I ran out of time. So I hope that you're with me. Any questions? I'm getting really warm, so I'm going to take my jacket off. Okay, got it? So if I give you a little thought paper assignment and ask you to construct a little thought paper on the importance of this, you would be able to do it. That was rhetorical. I really didn't expect you to answer that. All right. Well, good. Then, uh, yeah, please, Jim. So there are several generations listed here. That's correct. That's correct. Assuming they lived, I don't know, 100 years or something like that. We're talking quite a bit of time that has passed from Cain to Lamech. That's correct. Um, It's hard to know how many, but it's... More than like a couple hundred. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. From God's perspective, 
and how God evaluates things. Technology and sophistication and culture, it's almost irrelevant. What's really important is are you following what I am, as your creator, saying the best things for you to do for your good? And I mean, I, I think that is why it is so important for us even in 2016. And not just to make it a political issue, but to make it an issue of the church. It is the church that should teach, model, and live that human beings are of infinite worth and value to God, regardless of who they are, because they, he creates them in his image. And two, God created institutional marriage with clear parameters. And if you follow those, he will bless it. If you don't follow those, he will not bless it. And, and that is that to me, that's one of the greatest concerns. Those two things, the greatest concern I have for America. It isn't our trade policy. And it isn't that those things aren't important. And it, it isn't whether we're going to build a wall in Mexico or not. Maybe you shouldn't have brought that up. But, you know, it, those things, are, those may or may not be issues. But what is really, really important to God are those two things. They're the linchpins of organized civilization that God blesses. And both of those in our culture pr are pretty weak foundations. Talking about Maybe crumbling foundations. Are you talking about the church and marriage? Well, yeah, the, the, a church proclaiming, teaching, and modeling those two Key linchpin. What yeah. was the second one? Well, the first one is that humans have value and worth because God creates them in His image, and then seeks to redeem them. And the second one is 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 how uh, marriage is supposed to function. It's interesting in the next boast that these seventy and seven, yeah. and that must imply that over the period of time from Cain up to Enoch. That, that this was a known entity that, that Cain was protected by good, God. Good point. And that, that uh, you know, if God protected Cain, then he's really going to protect me because I'm, I'm a descendant of Cain. Yeah, yeah. It's just, there, there's such an audacity here and a boastful arrogance. The Greeks have a word, hubris. There's a hu I love that word, hubris, because it's so... Much of that in in, in 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 world history and even in our day today, and uh, hubris is not something that God's going to bless. It's just not going to bless it. All right, now the rest is a couple of verses of chapter. It's kind of like a false chapter breaking away, but what follows next is a different line. This is the line of Shem. Because Abel was killed by Cain. Now, and we just saw a brief summary of Cainite civilization. Not Canaanite, Cainite. Okay? Make sure I didn't want you to get confused on that. Now, chapter, uh, the rest of chapter 4 and throughout chapter 5 is the line of Seth. Uh, um, and and the, what's called the Shemite line, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Adam knew, his, again, knew is a... Uh, euphemism for sexual intercourse, his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Let's think of this as a new beginning. Abel's dead. Cain has defied God. What's the redemptive line? You follow my question? The, what's the, right now, Abel's dead in Cain. Cainite is, line is not going to be the line of redemption. 
So a new beginning. It's Seth. For she said, God has appointed me for another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I'm reading from the ESV translation, and that's a good translation. The, the point of this, the point of this is before Seth, nobody worshiped God. That's not the point of this. The point of this declaration, this declarative sentence is, it is Seth's line that is going to be the line of blessing. The redemptive line is going to come through Seth, and it is his line, not Cain's line. It's his line that is proclaiming and worshiping Yahweh as the creator. Because you you know you see that Lord there is in capitals. That's Yahweh. It is Seth and Seth's line that is proclaiming and worshiping Yahweh. That's an important piece of information. Because now we want to, and that's what the Bible is going to do, we want to keep our eye on that. And we'll see what happens to that line uh, in, in just a bit. So do you understand why, I mean, I took a couple minutes on that. That's, that's just a really important piece of information. With Abel dead, he starts over. He, God, starts over again with Seth. Because it's not going to come through Cain's line. And it's Seth's line where you see genuine worship, general, genuine proclamation of Yahweh as the creator. Tell me again the Bible that you're using. E, uh, ES, uh, e, English Standard Version, ESV. It's a fairly new translation. ESV. ESV. ESV, yes. But it uh, sounds like it's a little bit more accurate than. <laughs> well, uh, translations are. It, I I choose ESV because I like I like it I like its accuracy. You know. Now, chapter five is not a chapter we're going to read. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's a genealogy. These. This is a book of the generations of Adam. And God created man, he made him in the likeness. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then it goes on. Now this again, this is not, this is not the line of Adam through Cain. This is the line of Adam through Seth, his son. Do you understand? And so what you see is you see each generation, most of your translations will have each major generation indented and you see it but the end of each generation what do you see and he died and he died and he died death now enters into the picture death is now the will and purpose of god even in the line of seth because god said the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die. And every generation that follows dies because every generation is born with the guilt and corruption of Adam. And God has to take care of that through his redemptive work. <clears throat> but there are two names I do want to highlight. It's in verse 24. 
And then in verse 27, the very, very famous Methuselah. Methuselah is the oldest man who ever lived. He lived 969 years. Years ago, when my wife and I were studying this together, she said, why would anyone want to live 969 years? And I thought it was a very good comment, but he did. I want to talk about Enoch. It tells us in verse 25, because the sequence and rhythm of this passage, this chapter, is broken with Enoch. It says, Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. So we have two very, very important words there. Number one, the word walked. And number two, it's really a phrase, God took him. Which the only way to understand that is Enoch didn't die. It doesn't say, like it says, everyone else in this whole chapter, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. Enoch, God took him. What does that mean? Enoch didn't die. God took him to heaven directly. And because he walked with God. I hope you're thinking, walked with God, that reminds you of Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve walked with God. In Genesis 3, God comes into the garden to walk, and they're hiding. They're afraid of him because they've sinned. My verse uh, 9 says, Enoch, Enoch stood 905 years and then he died. I'm in verse 24. Okay. I'm in verse 24 of chapter 5. Yeah. <laughs> At right. the very end of that long uh, genealogy. Okay. What does that mean? Enoch walked with God. He was highly favored. So God had favor on him, but nobody else. I know what you're saying, but it's Enoch. It's Enoch is the subject. Enoch, you could say Enoch chose to and intentionally walked with God. That's, it's Enoch doing that. What does that mean he walked with God? I mean, it's, it's a figure, it's a metaphor, but it's an important one. I don't know. I, I see it as a personal, having a personal relationship with him uh, to the point where you could actually walk with him uh, to, in, the, in the matter of Adam and Eve. I think so. I mean, this is like, here you have an individual in this line of Seth that was extraordinary. He stood out. Marcus Dodd, who is a, a writer on, on these kinds of things, I love this. Listen to what he writes. It's, it's really, I think it's a wonderful... Um, and somewhat creative explanation. The phrase, Enoch walked with God, means that he was God's friend. He liked God's company. He was going in the same direction as God was. He had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We, now God is transferring it to us, we walk with God when he is in our thoughts, not because we consciously think of him all times, but because he's naturally suggested to us by all we think of. When any person or plan or idea has become important to us, no matter what we think of it, our thought is always, what does God think of this? Our connection is always to God. When some change in circumstances is thought, he is the first to determine how that proposed change will affect his relationship with God. 
Will his conscience be clear? Will he be able to live in the same friendly terms with God if he goes ahead with this? When he falls into sin, he cannot rest till he has assumed his place at God's side, confesses and walks with him again. This is the general nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all of life open to God's inspection and to be in conformity with his will. A readiness to give up what we find does cause misunderstanding between us and God. A feeling of loneliness if we have not some satisfaction in our efforts in being in fellowship with God. And it's a cold, a desolate feeling if we're doing something that displeases God. To walk with God defines a man's life and a man's character. I like that. Enoch walked with God. And it is instructive, especially, and it's in the Old Testament all over the place, but it's especially in the New Testament teaching passages. It's in Galatians 5, it's in Ephesians 4, it's in Philippians. Walk with God. So it is, and I think that's exactly why the the term walk is chosen, because walk is not abnormal. To run or sprint, that's abnormal. I mean, I think it is. I mean, I, you know, to sprint, but to walk with God. It's, in Greek, it's peripateo. It's the normal walk of life. So Enoch walked with God. And he was so extraordinary in, in this generation after generation after generation that God took him home. He didn't die. What are the three books that walking with God appears? Ephesians. Galatians, and Philippians. One of the really interesting things about this is he was 365 years. I mean, we might walk with God for a day or an afternoon yeah. or a week if we're really in 365 yeah. Yeah. years. A consistency of, that's amazing. Yeah. He's one of those guys. I mean, this is, this is the only, it's the only we know about him. We know anything else about him. He's one of those guys. I'm really kind of looking forward to meeting him. A lot of things I'm like, tell me about 365 years of walking with God. Tell me about that. Yeah, we had a little bracelet instead of WWJD or WWGD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it. it's intentional that we pay attention to verse 24. Is it purely coincidental the number of years he lived is the same number of days in a year? Oh, heavens, I don't know. I I don't know if there's a biblical answer to that. Maybe it's just a coincidence. I don't know. But, yeah. That's right. That's right. Was it kind of like redeeming the name by... You know that is that is really a good uh, good observation. I, I don't I don't know that. I would think it could be. Uh, there's, a, there's a Jewish principle, Jewish tradition to renew the names uh, it down, is. down through the it is. years. Yeah. Uh, and it's, so it's it's very common for a for a name to to march down mm. generation to, to redeem if there's if it's been defiled or whatever it it could be i mean that's a good comment i never thought of that i never thought of it that way but it very well could be i was intrigued with your comment that we really don't know much about you know yeah i've i've long been convinced that in heaven some of the people god is going to honor most are those simple unknown 
quiet people who have lived their whole life walking with God. Exactly. I studied under a guy named Howard Hendricks, and he, he would say that. Uh, Jesus says, in, in my kingdom, the greater, or uh, how does he say that? The least. The least the least of the, they will be the foremost and those foremost that they'll be the least and hendrix used to say he was from philadelphia i had a sunday school teacher this is i, I hope i'm remembering the the years it was a lot i think he said for 45 years she taught fifth grade boys for 45 he said she is going to be way ahead of me in the kingdom of christ because it was a faithful, but he then, he itemized, he knew, because that's where he was from. A lot of the guys went through a Sunday school class, would go on and become pastors and missionaries and statesmen and lawyers. I mean, just sterling men of integrity. And a lot of them said it started with that Sunday school teacher. She was tough. She wouldn't let them get away with anything, but she taught them the Bible. For 45 years, a fifth grade Sunday school teacher, a boy is for goodness sakes. I mean, it's just, that's, and that's exactly what, you know, and nobody, nobody knows her. You mentioned her, Hendrix, nobody knows who she is, but God does. And she, she will be honored in his kingdom as the least, you know, of, of all the ones that, she'll be way ahead of Billy Graham. That's what Hendrix used to say. But I think there's some real truth to that. And Enoch is just one of those guys that, we know nothing about him except that he walked with God. And that's pretty important to know that about him. And that's why he's honored in the scriptures. He is, I should say, he is in, the, he is in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, he's mentioned in the Hall of Faith guys there at the beginning of the chapter. All right, now, um, if you look at the rest of chapter 5 before we make this enormous enormous leap into chapter 6. When Lamech had lived, I'm in verse 28, 182 years. Now, this is not the Lamech of Cain civilization. He fathered a son and called his name Noah. Now, everything that's been in chapter 5 is now broken. The pattern, the format, the cadence, it's broken. Because Lamech says this of his boy. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, or some of your translations might have rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. An unusual, in many ways, an unusual statement. It's a, it's a, it's a redemptive statement. It's a statement of renewal. Rest or relief, uh, translations are differing on that, and from our painful toil. Everything that was a part of the curse, Genesis 3, Noah's going to have an effect on this. And so there's kind of a mystery about that, and that's what (coughs) chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 are going to be all about. So now we know from the line of Seth comes Noah. And his father says some unique things about him. Lamech lived after his father Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. And all the days were 777 years and he died. 
After Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which you're kind of fast-forwarding, but it's telling us how he fits into the line. So for where we are in our study, the line of Seth, that new beginning line, ends with Noah. That's important because God is about to start over excuse me, start over with Noah. Now, as we start this chapter, and really these next three chapters, uh, six, seven, and eight, and then nine um, things come together, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to think with me about a couple of things as we get started on this, this section. It really starts at the bottom of page eight and goes through page nine, ten, and following in your notes. But... The downward spiral that started with chapter 3 of Genesis, with sin entering the race and, and intentional rebellion, and then we saw it really deteriorate with, with the Cainite civilization. Even with Shem, uh, sorry, with Seth's generation, everybody's dying, except Enoch, but everybody's dying. But this downward spiral really accelerates, and something dastardly is going to happen in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, which we'll get to in just a minute. But this is threatening. What's happening in Genesis 6, 1 and 2 is threatening to the redemptive line. And God must act. And what you see is the theme that we have seen over and over again. God is going to recreate and so, as you, I mean, you know this, but the spread of death, the spread of death motif, the spread of sin motif is going to culminate in chapter 6. And God, and this is the language of the text, God is going to destroy all flesh. He's going to kill everything. Every human being, every plant, every animal, every, everything is going to die and God's going to start over again. And so you have this chaos recreation theme again. But something else is added, a strong emphasis on blessing. God will choose now to significantly bless to neutralize the curse of sin. He has to eradicate it. That will lead to the death of his son on the cross. But it's this this blessing this blessing motif, which is going to really be important. And God, the third thing I want you to look for is God is going to make a covenant. The first of his covenants. The Bible will be filled with covenants. This is the covenant God makes with Noah, which will be followed by the covenant God makes with Abraham, which will be followed by the covenant God makes with, with David and so on. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and he makes a promise in chapter 9. I will never do this again. I will never destroy my world as I just did. And this chaos recreation theme will not be picked up again until the end of time, the book of Revelation, where God will end the chaos and recreate in the new heaven and new earth. So here's, here's where God, this is a major, major, major threshold we're about to cross as we move into Noah. Because you see what unchecked evil brings about. 
And then God is the one who has to check it. And Because the sense of chapter 6 is if God did not intervene, the human race would destroy itself. If God did not intervene, it, it'll, just, it'll self-destruct. And so by God intervening, it is an act of his grace. He owes the human race nothing, but he offers the human race redemption. And so what you're going to see with Noah, Noah is going to be the channel through which God will restore and recreate. And as you know, that's why building the ark and so on. Many, many people mock chapter 6 through 9 as history. They mock it. This isn't history. It's just a story. It's just a legend. It didn't really happen. But documents coming out of the ancient world, stories and legends and myths coming out of the ancient world, as as well as the Sumerian king list coming out of the ancient world, all testify to a flood. So I, I see no reason to brush this off as just a bunch of stories. That's not history. It is presented as history, and it is then acknowledged as history. And the Lord Jesus Christ will say this again and again. As it was in the days of Noah, so, so Jesus isn't saying Noah's some made-up figure that didn't really exist. Jesus is attesting to the fact, treat this as historically true. And that becomes really, really important. And there's, I want to say one more thing by way of introduction. What what happens in this material in chapter 6 parallels what happened during the Great Tribulation, which we finished uh, a couple of months ago. I say that because Jesus will say in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be right before I come back. It's going to really be bad. Humans will just about self-destruct, and then I'm coming back. And so there's a parallel there. If God doesn't stop it, it will destroy itself. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the Great Tribulation. Because in my view, the church is gone. There's nothing to check, the, there's nothing to check evil except 144,000 and other. But it's just, it is so dastardly and so horrific that if God did not come back through his son, human race would destroy itself. As in the days of Noah, so it will be at the end. If we can know it, what's the time period between Adam and Eve and the flood? Do we know? I was thinking a millennium or two. Assuming, uh, this is a challenge, uh, assuming, and this is something that I'm not sure I want to get into, the chronologies of the genealogies, assuming there are no gaps in the genealogies. There is a little bit every now and then some tendency that maybe there are some gaps that they're just, I just don't know. But assuming there are no gaps, it you would think in the thousands of years. I've got a, some graphics and charts and stuff in my yeah. Bible. Yeah, yeah. And it says that Noah died in 930 and the flood was in 1650, so about 720 years. Based on the pagan at the time of Adam and Eve, is zero. Right, and like when Adam was born, zero is, is zero yeah. is what they're saying. Yeah. And he lived for 930 we, years, okay. and the flood was in the flood was in 16 right about 1656. 
I think is when the flood was. Yeah. Yeah, um, let's just be let's be real careful about some of that. I, I'm just I, I'm not trying to downplay, and I don't know uh, who's the author of that chart. It, we have to be really, really careful when we're trying to put together a really, really tight chronology before you get to Abraham. We know Abraham; you can date it. It's very precise. There are a number of markers there. That's other. We know exactly those dates. We can, but before Abraham, it's a little hard. I guess I'll put it this way: If I put a chronology together of Genesis one through eleven, I'm not going to die for that chronology. Right, right. I mean, it's it's because there are a number of factors that you have to just be really. We don't, we don't want to make assumptions that we do not necessarily have the basis for making an assumption. So let's let's. I I just caution care there, and some discretion. Once you get to Abraham, there are a lot of historical markers, and I mean, we. I mean, I in my book Covenant People, I'm very clear on that. You can really anchor very clear dates, but. It's a little, little more difficult to be that precise. Bishop Usher, who was an, an Anglican bishop of the previous century, put together a chronology of the Bible, and he had creation in October of 4046 B.C. or something like that. And one very cynical person said, was that Eastern Standard Time? Or, you know, I don't know. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's, it, that's silly and cynical, but it is, when you try to be that precise, you're not, you're not necessarily on solid ground. So that's why I backed off on that. So it, would, would it be all right if I don't get any further into that? It's just like today, they say, oh, the, you know, the Earth is millions of years old. Well, that's what they're off on that, too. So. Well, yeah, I mean... Let's just let's just stay away from that, okay? For now, is that all right? I want to introduce um, chapter six. The first couple of verses are just very, very important for what is going on um, in this deterioration and self-destruction of human civilization. When, a man, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. That's how the ESV translates that. We should look at that as positive. Because they, they are fulfilling God's command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Remember that? So what... In my view, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. What Moses is saying is, as the human race is doing what God wants the human race to do, something else happens. The sons of God, now I want you to notice this language. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive the Hebrew word is actually good. And they took as their wives any they chose. Now you should see three key words there that should remind you of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. 
They saw that it was good, and they took. So in the midst of doing what God wanted the human race to do, there is a group that is not doing what God wanted them to do. The sons of men, sons of God, saw that the daughters were, again, the Hebrew word there is good, translated often attractive, but good, and they took. Just what Eve did in, in chapter 3, verse 6. Now, the debate, the discussion, the problem, the challenge is we know who the daughters of man are. Who are the sons of God? This is one of the more problematic verses of the Bible, and there have been books and articles written on the phrase sons of God, and it'll continue until Christ comes back. One group says these are angels because the, the phrase is sometimes used, it's in the book of Job, for example, the sons of God is a could be understood as a reference to angelic beings. The, the only problem with that, it seems to me, is nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it say that angels can procreate. Do you understand what I mean by that sentence? It, nowhere does it say that. So my, because of how you see verse 4 unfold, the product of these sons of God having sexual intercourse with the daughters of men are these Nephilim, which I'll talk about in a minute. I think the best way to understand this is these are individuals. These are strong, warrior-like, mighty men who are demon-possessed. They are energized by satanic power. They're energized by Satan. They're demons. Because what they are trying to do is destroy the redemptive line. You understand what I mean by that sentence? to mix and destroy and corrupt and deal a fatal blow to what God wants to do, which is redeem the human race. Remember Genesis 3.15, from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's hope in the midst of all this chaos, disorder, and dysfunction. And so that means through a human being is going to come a redeemer. If you are Satan, the best strategy you can possibly develop is to corrupt and destroy that line. That becomes very, very important once you get to Abraham, because Abraham's line is going to be the line of redemption. In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed through you. The redemptive line is going to come through you. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that's narrowed down to the Davidic line. The king, the Messiah, the Savior is going to come through the line of David. And you see two times in the Old Testament in those, in those kingly lines, in, in Judah, there's down to one young child. Every other member of the Davidic line had been killed. That one child. And if that child had been killed, there would have been no Davidic, Davidic line preserved. And I hope you're following what I'm saying. Satan is trying to corrupt it. 
And so what God sees here, and then this, this next verse, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Very difficult Hebrew phrase. Shall not strive with, shall not contend with. Now listen to me. The protective, guarding role of the spirit is now being threatened. What the, you saw, the spirit hovered over. It was back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. That protective, serving, guarding, keeping role of the spirit. This is highly jeopardized. It's in jeopardy now. For all, he is flesh. His days shall be for 120 years. It's a very difficult phrase. Okay. Warning. Something nefarious is happening in the human race. Sons of God, I believe it's these mighty warriors, mighty men, um, indwelt by demonic power, are trying to corrupt and destroy everything that God has planned. And the spirit, I cannot, I cannot protect us, what they're choosing to do. His day shall be 120 years. What does that mean? The life of humans are now going to change from living 900 years to 120 years? Or does it mean in 120 years I'm going to destroy everything? My own view is that's what he's saying. This protective, guarding function that the Spirit has, it can't last. The corruption is so thorough, 120 years till I start over again. Because that's how long it goes from when this is announced to Noah... Finishes his ark and the flood starts. So God is announcing, in effect, in 120 years, I'm going to start over. Things are so corrupt that things are deteriorating so rapidly and so quickly, I've got to start over. I've got to recreate, which is what he will do when he sends the flood, destroys all flesh, and starts over with with Noah and his children. Are Are you with me or have I lost you? It is true, too, also, that, that the lifespans went down dramatically. They do. After Noah, after Noah you are correct. My thing here, and I, you know, this is just one interpretation, that Noah lived for 950 years, but then Shem only lived for 600. That's right. And it kept going down, where That's right. Nahor was only 148, That's Jacob right. was only 147, so, and it seemed like everybody after that went down. The, li- the lifespan, that's right, the lifespan gets down in the rest of the Old Testament, pretty much to where our lifespan is. That's right. I always thought that was the expanse that was around, you know, when it fell after, you know, when it rained and then the waters come up from the road, that changed it too. Well, you're right. We're going to talk about that when we get to Everything on planet Earth changes after the flood. What the earth and world was before the flood and after the flood, it is a, everything changes. In, including what they eat and, and, and the lifespan. Everything is really affected. My vegetarian friends say, well, that's when humans began to become carnivores. Before that, they were vegetarian. That's why they lived so long. I'm not sure that's the right way to conclude it. <laughs> no, I mean, vegetarian were shepherds and oh, yeah, of yeah, cattle. Yeah, but that could have been you know, for the milk and the other thing. But I don't want to get into this at this point. You know, it is it's approaching 10 of maybe better quit. So I hope I didn't confuse you because we went through these three verses really quickly. 
and I, I'll maybe start over again next week just a little bit with chapter um, 6, verses 1 through. But what is happening here is humanity is changing the boundaries that God set up. And in changing the boundaries that God set up, it's threatening all life. And so God, and the spirit, you know, the spirit's no longer that. Things are changing. What is God going to do? In 120 years, he's going to start over. And that's what the next section is about. All right, we'll get into that next week. I want to pray for Fred and his uh, sister as well. Uh, you want to read chapter six and work through it and write a four-page essay on it? That'd be great. But at least read chapter six. That'd be great. Lord, uh, thank you for this time. These are, and I, I'm sure the men are seeing this. These are really foundational chapters to understand the rest of the Bible and why you do what you do, why you act the way you act. And each act is an act of your grace and an act that keeps the focus on redemptively what you are doing. Lord, we do remember Fred here this uh, this day. Um, yeah, according to this little note, he's ill, very sick. So we pray that you will restore him to good health. And he also wants us to pray for his sister, Shirley, who is dealing with cancer. I'm, I'm really not clear on the severity or seriousness of this, but cancer is something, it's very serious. So we lift her up to you today, too. Would you minister to her? Thank you, Tom's back with us, that you've restored him to health, help him to continue in his recovery. And we just are grateful that he's able to be back with us now. Give us a good rest of this day. And in all we do and all we say throughout the rest of this day and this week until we regather again next Wednesday, Lord, enable us to represent you well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.